Hey folks, so this is a speech that was given by Matthew Parker, who is a locomotive engineer and a union activist at a recent convention of the Nevada State AFL-CIO. And we thought it was really relevant to some of the stuff we've been talking about, and we thought folks would like to hear it. So here it is. Brothers and sisters, the rail system in this country is in crisis. Unlike the last major crisis we saw in the 1970s, which was the result of economics and regulation, this crisis is the result of the rail carriers choosing to operate in a manner allowing them to return exorbitant amounts of money to shareholders and hedge funds while ignoring their responsibilities to this country as common carriers. Let me start by telling you how this is affecting you. If you are waiting for your new Ford Bronco to be delivered, or your new refrigerator, or perhaps for material for a home improvement project you have planned, there's a good chance that part of pro the problem is the rail carrier's choice to move freight at their convenience not expediently, so as to maximize their profits. It is further tangling this nation's troubled supply chain and driving inflation while negatively impacting your pocketbooks and quality of life. Now let me explain how it is affecting us. Since June of 2020, we have been working without a contract. No pay raises. While we have been deadlocked with rail carriers who refuse to bargain in good faith, and there is little that we can do about it, Unlike most of you in this room who work under the National Labor Relations Act, we work under the Railway Labor Act, or as Vice President Pilcher has so eloquently put it, the Railway Anti-Labor Act. This law was written in the early part of the 20th century and was designed to prevent national railroad strikes at a time when the rail industry looked much different than it does today. In 1980, when the rail system in this country was largely deregulated financially to save much of it from bankruptcy and the need for government takeover, there were 45 major rail carriers in this country. Today, as Vice President Pilcher has already stated, that number is down to seven and is likely to soon shrink to six as the Surface Transportation Board is poised to approve yet another merger. These carriers bargain as a unit, which craftily puts them in a position of being shielded from strikes by the Railway Labor Act by making almost any dispute over contract terms a national issue. We've just completed the next step in the process required under the Railway Labor Act, which is when we reached the point of self-help, President Biden, as specified in the act, appointed a presidential emergency board to hear arguments from both sides as to what the provisions of our contract should be. In doing so, he kicked the self-help can another 60 days down the road. The board recently issued its report on its findings, and in many ways, it was not good for us. The law firm which employs Brother Nate Ring has been retained by the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees Division to represent them in this process. We spoke at length with Brother Ring yesterday regarding his experience in attending the proceedings of this PEB. He repeatedly spoke of how disgusting it was to witness the disdain expressed by the carrier's representatives with regard to their workforce. The carriers did nothing to further the concept of reaching an amicable solution to this dispute with regard to their remarks expressing their reviews of their workforce as summarized in the PEB's report. Our membership is particularly inflamed by one specific paragraph in the report— and when I read this to you, I expect you will clearly see why they are so inflamed. On page 32 of the PEB's report, the first full paragraph on this page reads as follows, quote, The carriers maintain their capital investment and risk are the reasons for their profits, not any contributions by labor. The carriers further argue that there is no correlation historically between high profits and higher compensation, either in the freight rail industry or more generally. To the contrary, one of the carrier's experts maintained that the most profitable companies are not those whose compensation is the highest. 
The carriers assert that since employees have been fairly and adequately paid for their efforts and do not share in the downside risks of the, if the operations are less profitable, then they have no claim to share in the upside either, end quote. In recent hearings before the Surface Transportation Board in Congress, the rail carriers blame much of their historically poor level of service on a manpower shortage. How does it further the goal of hiring and retaining employees when they publicly express that this is how they view their workforce? On July 15th, as the apparent result of what might be considered a simple mistake, Brother Sal Ruiz, a maintenance-of-way employee, was involved in an accident in which his backhoe was struck by an Amtrak train. This 39-year-old brother with a wife and children lost both of his legs and will likely never work again on the rails as a result of this accident. But as the rail carriers say, he bore no downside risk. A good part of the manpower crisis we are currently experiencing in the northern Nevada can be attributed to the group of workers hired in 2014 who, after facing for a third time the downside risk of furlough, chose to leave the company and seek stable employment that would support their families elsewhere. Downside risk. On a personal note, as my late wife lay in an intensive care bed at renowned medical center in Reno last October, critically ill, in order to support our household and keep the lights on, I had to get on trains and take them to Elko working under federal regulations which prohibit me from having my cell phone on while on the train, making me incommunicado, not knowing if when I got to the other end of the line, I would have a message from the hospital that her health had taken a turn for the worse or that she had passed away. Does it make you feel safe to know that engineers and conductors in charge of 15,000-foot-long trains consisting of 250 freight cars, in some case loaded with dangerous materials, sometimes so dangerous that they are not allowed to be transported by highway, were going to work bearing such a burden? Does that make you feel safe? Is there anybody else in this room who knows the dread and fear associated with reporting to work knowing that a loved one may pass away while you are there? Anyone? I see no hands going up, and I thank God for that, because I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But that was my life for 25 days last October. And when that time finally came, it was by the grace of God, not by the grace of the railroad, that I was home, and Abe was able to be by her side, holding her hand as she passed from this earth. And yet these arrogant, self-serving bastards have the audacity to say to me that I bear no downside risk. How dare they? How dare they say that to me or to Brother Ruiz or to Jason or Joe or a good friend and brother of mine dealing with the aftermath of a fatal accident in which his train struck a pedestrian or any of the other thousands of railroad workers in this country? How dare they? Does this make you angry? Good. Now here's what we need you to do about it. When you see the members of our congressional delegation, some of whom will be present here with us at this convention, you need to speak to them this message. No more can the rail carriers of this country be allowed to shirk their common carrier responsibility in order to maximize payout to shareholders in a way that negatively affects the pocketbooks and quality of life of Americans. No more can the rail carriers be allowed to mistreat and disrespect their workforce as they are currently doing. No more will the labor community tolerate such mistreatment and disrespect for our railroad workers because an injury to one is an injury to all. Today, it's the railroad workers of this country. Tomorrow, it might be you. No more. No more. Just as the rallying cry of this body after facing the attack on labor from the 2015 legislature became never again, our rallying cry regarding this issue needs to be no more. No more. Thank you, and thank you to the board for allowing me this time to address this issue.
Yeah, it's hard to really add anything to that. Uh, so I'm really glad that we were able to open the show with it. And uh, I guess also this marks one of the times where we are actually on message at the beginning of the show. So <laughs> welcome to Work Stoppage, everybody. This is a labor podcast. Uh, we're 100% listener supported. So thank you so much for any uh, money you might be donating to us on the Patreon. If you're not in the Discord yet, get in there. It's free. It's a great place. If you are a patron and you would like stickers and don't have any yet, you can message us on Patreon and you can leave a five-star review view anywhere that you think it will help the show. Apple Podcasts is the conventional wisdom, but honestly, I think just uh, putting a I sign... I mean, Labor Day's coming up, so uh, you know, print out some flyers and hand them out at your Labor Day rally. <laughs> That's right. Hell yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, on the topic of workplace injuries and deaths, I suppose, we're going to be following up with Amazon, where they have installed new air conditioning units at the New Jersey warehouse, where uh, they claimed that lack of air conditioning did not cause the death of Rafael Reynaldo Motafrias, who you may have heard us talk about a couple of times on this show. Uh, and so Monday, August 22nd, NBC News actually reported that Amazon quietly installed their new a- AC system at the EWR9 warehouse in New Jersey, uh, yet they continue to maintain that conditions in the warehouse had nothing to do with his death. Anybody who can read an article knows that this is not true. This is completely undermined by the fact that immediately after Motafrias' death, the company started handing out more water to workers and now has continued uh, in that pattern by upgrading the AC Workers at the facility have also told reporters that new fans have been installed in the warehouses over the pa- in the warehouse over the past few weeks. So, not hard to guess what the motivation for that is. Yeah, like I, I mean, this is just a quick update, and I didn't want to put this in here to be like, aha, look, hypocrisy, because like, of course, mm. we know that. But I, it's it's to emphasize that you know, big companies like Amazon spend a lot of money on PR people for a reason. They're usually pretty good at dismissing people by using detached, often technical-sounding language, you know, derived often from the legal profession to make it, you know, to give you the we see you, we hear you, but, you know, it just, there was nothing we could do and all this sort of thing. And it's a lie. Every single time they know they're lying. And it's so important to understand that, that like these people are not talking to you in good faith. Like they are telling you whatever they think they have to, in order to get you to go away. And I mean, it's Amazon. Like they're, they're notoriously tricky, even just from a customer point of view, you know, it's like, we see you, we hear you, we are processing your request. Please hit cancel to continue. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, this just so like, there's not, there's not a ton to this story. It's just the fact that, like, I mean, this whole time, you know, every single time there's a death at an Amazon facility, it's always, oh, this is a tragedy and we feel so bad and huge condolences to the family, but it wasn't our fault. And every single time they say that, that's not true. And and it's important to recognize that it's like they're not saying this because they're not sure why something happened. They're not saying this because they think that there's a bunch of different possible causes. They're just literally saying it to get out of any sort of responsibility and, most importantly, to make sure that no restrictions whatsoever are placed on their ability to super exploit their workers and extract as much profit as they can from them, even if it results in their deaths. So, like, that's the important thing, I think, to take away from this story. Like, because the thing Mm -hmm. is, like, we're glad that the workers that are still at EWR9 have an AC. That's good. That, that's a good thing. The problem is that, like, 
A, they didn't have that in the first place and only did this in order to, you know, prevent further bad publicity, which that's kind of the most perverse part of this, is that the thing like that they're concerned about here is not workers dying because it's human beings losing their lives. It's because it could bring further, you know, regulation, further scrutiny, further bad publicity to the company. That's what they're worried about. And so I think it's really important to highlight when there's these exposures of Amazon's lies, because there's a lot of people who, you know, you skim through, you see the headlines and you, you, you don't have a lot of time. You got a busy day. So you just got to take whatever the headline says. And so like, there's a lot of people who don't necessarily read into the details of these stories. And so it's stuff like this that we can provide to folks to be like, yeah, we know they said they had nothing to do with Rafael Reynaldo Motafrias' death. And here's the objective material proof that they also knew they were lying about that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And in our next follow-up, we're going to be talking about the Columbus teachers' strike, which ended after three days. We had spoken about how you know teachers' strikes make such an impact on a community that they very rarely last very long. Well, in this case, mm-hmm. that has held true. So yeah, uh, I made I I made a quick allusion to the fact that they were on strike on beep beep lettuce, and by the time I edited the episode, the strike was over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was a quick one. Yeah. Um Well, uh, I mean, with the teacher strike, it had uh, forced classes online, which I, we've seen so much pushback against online classes that it. Be, I mean, I'm sure that was a very strong motivating factor for people who wanted the teachers to get back into the classroom. And uh, so when the bargaining committee came out with their tentative agreement, they did something that we have his- like consistently said is something unions should not do. In fact, we've even given the example in one of our overtime episodes when covering the Chicago workers union uh, and the core workers strike in 2012, how they had brought the contract to each of the workers and before ending the strike and given them an opportunity to go over the contract, have a discussion, and then vote on whether or not they want to continue on strike. Well, that did not happen in this case. The Columbus Teachers uh, Bargaining Unit, in the announcement of their tentative agreement, uh, combined that with an announcement of the end of the strike which is something we consistently say is undemocratic and is against the pursuit of a rank-and-file union. Now, the workers themselves, when voting on the contract, voted 71 to 29 in favor of the contract, but that 29 to us kind of seems like a fairly decent uh, opposition to the contract, which could be just people being like, hey, I'm not part of this, and then also maybe shows a little bit of the manufacturing of the consent of the workers that says, oh, no, everybody agrees, so why don't you just vote yes for this contract? And besides, you're not on strike anymore anyway, so what more can you get? Yeah, I mean, it looks like they literally had 100 votes uh, in this 71 to 29. Is that percentages? Yeah, sorry, it adds that's, up yeah to that's the percentage. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I was going to say, like, it seems low. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, if you have like 30% of your of your uh, voting block who are like, hey, look, this contract really isn't up to standard, I think that that's enough to, to take a step back and be like, well, maybe, you know, should we talk about it? And then should we decide whether we're going to accept this or push for more? Yeah, because yeah, like, and this is something I feel like we've seen actually large most commonly with specifically teacher strikes this practice i think largely because of you know what we've talked about with like the reason that teacher strikes have such a huge impact 
every day that they go on. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you think you got a good contract, you want to be like, hey, we did it. We can we can we can go back and we let's let's not waste like the good energy we got from the community. But and so, but the problem here is that even if it's a great tentative agreement, even if you won everything by not giving the membership a chance to look at it before you declare the end of the strike. I mean, it's it's inherently undemocratic, but also if your goal as a union activist is to build strong unions where every member is engaged and and is really bought into the project of building that collective power, you're not helping yourself by taking the rank and file out of that process. Because what that does is it builds detachment because people are like, well, I don't really have any say in what the bargaining unit is doing. So like, I mean, really, why why should I pay that much attention to, you know, union operations? And this is not to like condemn the Columbus Education Association as some horrible, you know, business union or anything. It's just that this specific sort of undemocratic practice undermines a lot of what unions are supposed to be about. And it's really frustrating to see. Right. Well, and let's look at what the contract actually uh, looks like uh, now that the workers have voted to, you know, ratify it. So originally, the company had offered, you know, in their final offer, a 3% raise to the teachers, which is uh, well below the 8% that the teachers have been asking for. Well, in the contract, uh, it ended up being a 4% raise, which is not, in uh, my opinion, a huge increase to the original 3% offer and still represents a pay cut due to the rate of inflation that's been happening Mm -hmm. in in the country right now. Um, although in in other aspects of this contract, the teachers did actually get uh, some mostly significant wins, though with some minor caveats. So uh, they have been fighting to have like full climate controlled buildings and upgraded ventilation to help protect from COVID and uh, and you know heat problems within the the building. And within their contract, they have a, a, a commitment from the the, the schools to actually in do all of this by the end of the contract. Now, by the end of the contract, uh, so this is a three-year contract. You know, I mean, like, it seems like there will still be a lot of harm done in that period of time, though it is good that they have gotten it to be, like, kind of progressing into to that direction. Additionally, they uh, have gotten with, into the contract uh, limits to the number of different roles that uh, physical education, art, and music teachers can be assigned to, basically ensuring that uh, more students have access to these courses and these these um, kind of other essential parts of, of childhood education. Uh, teachers also won a hard cap on class sizes uh, that was a reduction of the maximum number of students uh, by two at uh, every single grade level. Uh, they, they also won, uh, paid parental leave for all workers, which is a really significant win, uh, so that, you know, any, any teacher who is, is doing family planning, uh, it, it has the, the freedom to, to actually take time off of work and, and do that and, you know, support their community in that way. 
Yeah, so I mean, there are a lot of really significant meat and potatoes wins in there, even if their wage only did go up by half of the rate of inflation. Uh, and part of the reason that they were able to achieve all of this so quickly is because they had, uh, you know, not they don't just function as like one of the most important parts of the community, but they also had the support of that same community. So you have students who were interviewed by CNN, and they told reporters that, of course, they didn't want to switch to remote learning, but that they supported the teachers because of what they were fighting for. And you have parents who were also supportive, such as Jasmine Collins, who told reporters, quote, sometimes you have to stand for something. It's a great cause. They're asking for reasonable things for these children. I stand with the teachers. I'm all for it. And and I like in that quote as well how she, she doesn't just highlight that she stands with the teachers, but she stands with the teachers because what they're asking for is really in many ways also for the students. Right. And, and that's one thing like, so, I, I mean, I think that some of the stuff that you pointed out, Lena, about some of the details of some of those policies, I really do think like explains why there was a decent amount of opposition to the the tentative agreement because I, it, it seemed like from you know the stuff I was reading that like a decent amount of the teachers felt about um, you know almost a third at least felt that they could have perhaps gotten more like gotten those uh, you know perhaps gotten the class sizes reduced a little more maybe gotten five percent instead of four percent increase and but one thing that I will you know I will certainly praise the strike for is that when the the strikers went in when the teachers went into this they were very clear that the primary goal of the strike is to provide a safer healthier and better educational environment for the students and those are the goals that they clearly focused on so like the the wins in the contract definitely reflect that and and go right against most of the propaganda that was coming out of the school board that was mostly like oh the teachers are hurting your kids learning environment cuz they want more money which first off it's like it would be fine if the teachers wanted more money they're criminally underpaid right <laughs> but but it also just shows it's like this strike ultimately was about the students and 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 that's what you know is reflected in the fact that the the families understood that. And one of the other interesting things, I didn't put this in the notes, but there was uh, several of the supportive parents that talked to CNN and other outlets actually said they're like, yeah, I know they're doing remote schooling during the strike on Wednesday, but I'm not telling my kids to go to it because I would be crossing the picket line. And And those parents were actually threatened with like truancy calls from the district if they didn't have their kids log into the remote learning for like a couple of days during the beginning of this strike. And it's like kind of a, like, like it, it's not, it's, it's one of those threats. It's like, you're obviously not going to follow through with that. Mm. And it's just ridiculous that you would even say that. Like it just shows like the, the frustration, I think clearly that the school board had that their attempts to turn the parents against the teachers to split them apart from each other were not successful. Yeah. And so I think that's definitely to the teacher's credit. And these institutions, including, I mean, the ways that, that corporate corporations work, I mean, in this kind of similar way, it does try to form a wedge between the, the community and the, the workers movement, which is designed to benefit the community. And when the community and the workers come together, there is only benefits for each. And I think that we see that in the solidarity and we see that recognized by the parents themselves standing in solidarity with the teachers. Yeah, absolutely. So even though, you know, we have some critiques of some of the democratic process involved with this, uh, you know, still uh, shout outs to the teachers for standing up for their students and fighting for them and getting some real material wins. Always good to see that sort of collective power used. But for our next quick follow up story, we've got a 
unambiguously great news for for once. Uh, we've got uh, following up with the REI Berkeley union election, which finally happened after a whole bunch of delays last week. And I just want to you know throw a shout out here to Samwise in our Discord, who is actually directly involved with the REI union there in Berkeley. At, like just incredible organizing job like, job on this because on Thursday, August twenty fifth. The votes were finally counted for the mail-in election for the workers at the REI in Berkeley. And, hey, came out ahead 56-38 in favor of joining the UFCW alongside their comrades at their store in Soho in New York City that unionized earlier this year. And so, hey, the REI union movement is now bi-coastal, which is a really, really big development. And so, you know, huge shout-outs to the folks at the store in Berkeley for making this happen. Well, and we're incredibly honored that that one of the listeners of our show is participating in this sort of of union activity i mean uh if anyone else is uh out there doing organizing you know let us know or or i mean or you know keep it on the down low however you feel comfortable but but it's really really heartening to see that that you know this this message is actually helping some people yep means a lot to us and and uh we do have a quote from sharon delap who is a worker at the store and uh she said in a union statement quote this opportunity to have a voice in my work world gives me great hope for all my other green vests here at rei and retail workers nationally improving our daily experience and having our needs met by management with a union contract will help us ser- better serve our rei community uh, which is really great love hearing that from the workers and you know if any listeners don't remember this is the company rei that tried to union bust by starting a woke union busting podcast <laughs> that featured a land acknowledge a land acknowledgement excuse me before trying to argue why rei workers don't need a union and then they also flyered their workers cars telling them to vote no uh they continue to claim they support workers rights but this is america and you can say anything you want and not fucking mean it so <laughs> yeah Absolutely. And I mean, obviously, you know, we'll, we'll see how everything happens as the union shifts to, to bargaining for their first contract. But mm-hmm. that step for any union movement of going from one shop to two is such a huge qualitative leap because it's, it can be easy to isolate and, and attack one store. I mean, we've seen how hard Amazon has tried to do that with the folks at JFK 8, even when it's, you know, one of the biggest warehouses in the country. So getting it to that second location, huge win, and we love to see it. So congrats once again to the the workers at REI in Berkeley. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in things that we don't love to see, we're actually <laughs> yeah. partially doing a, uh, a follow-up on, although people may not remember as, you know, this is going to be mostly for for long, long, long time listeners. Uh, we're going to be talking about Whole Foods and their explicit attacks on the Black Lives Matter movement. Originally, we had kind of uh, talked a little bit about this when we talked about companies cracking down on mask usage in uh, at work with. Uh, people who were using masks that said Black Lives Matter on them, being told that they could not wear those sorts of masks. And uh, we've actually seen specific documentation come out from the uh, the the company itself that uh, says that they really were being racist as hell. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of this is coming out because, like, yeah, as Lena was saying, this is actually, you know, before I joined the podcast, uh, you know, talking about this during the 2020 uprising against racism, where... Yeah, you, exactly as you said, you had workers who were basically told that they could either get rid of the masks that had BLM on it 
or go home. And so there's been a lawsuit that's been working its way through the courts for two goddamn years now at this point. And it's just finally getting to the point where this initial case is wrapping up. And so that's really what we're getting into here because with that lawsuit has come a ton of like new information about what was actually going on during that process. And I, I mean, this is this is the sort of battle that has happened all throughout, you know, the history of capitalism between workers wanting to be able to have their own freedom of speech and bosses being like, not while you work for me, you don't. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, traditionally, of course, the capitalist state tends to rule almost unanimously in favor of the bosses. But one of the things I think that was really interesting about this story in particular is that with the stuff that has come out in this trial, we see how the bosses understand the linkage between the struggle against the oppression of black Americans and the class struggle in this country. And that I think is why one of the things that, you know, it's so important. We talk about it on the show all the time, how we have to understand how those struggles are intimately linked and that you can't really fight one of these by itself. You have to fight them both at the same time. And I mean, we see, as you said, Lena, like with some of the just racist shit that they said during this, like Whole Foods lawyers made this argument with a straight face in court where they said, quote, President Trump referred to Black Lives Matter itself as, quote, a symbol of hate. And like it or not, a significant number of the former president's supporters share his view, end quote. Oh, saying that that meant that therefore the Black Lives Matter slogan is controversial and therefore the company has a right to force workers not to display it. And they finished it up with, I mean, perhaps one of the more open explanations of how capitalism works and the dictatorship of the, the rich of saying, quote, it is for Whole Foods leadership to decide. It is not for the hourly store team members, end quote. <laughs> and that lawyer's name was Neville Chamberlain. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. And and, and so, like, uh, Jennifer Abruzzo, you know, the NLRB general counsel, I mean, she made the point, a counterpoint, which I think is a very good explanation of why that argument is bullshit, where she said, quote, that's like saying back in the 50s, we have to keep black people in the back room because our customers don't want a black person. I don't find that to be particularly persuasive, end quote. No, but I got to say, I find what Jennifer Abruzzo just said to be particularly persuasive. I don't think, I think that's an even, an extremely illuminating example that, uh, you know, it's not hard to, uh, imagine for most people living today. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things though, that we found that was so important from this trial is that during the period of discovery, when, you know, they're getting information and files from the other side during the, the whole lawyer process, the NLRB actually uncovered an internal management email that in it, where the Whole Foods, you know, executives are talking about this whole thing where they're trying to ban the workers from having anything that says Black Lives Matter on it. And in this email, a Whole Foods executive said that allowing workers to wear anything with the BLM slogan on it would be, quote, opening the door for union activity, end quote. And yeah, so that's true, actually. I mean, yeah. like immediately tying the the struggle for uh, you know justice against racism uh, to you know union activity. Imagine that the way that mm -hmm. we often say that these things have to be fought for at the exact same time. They they the working or the 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 ruling class knows this, and they're scared of it. They're scared of that solidarity that that we can show through the power of our, of, of withholding our labor. 
yeah, I mean, if they see their workers organizing in any fashion, I mean, uh, for any cause, basically, they're, they're going to realize, because we've said many times, the bourgeoisie is class conscious. That's why you need to be, too. Uh, they're they're going to realize that, like, that's giving you the tools to, to organize in other ways. And maybe soon you'll start coming after their profits. And then they probably are also very racist. I don't want to gloss over <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I would especially be willing to wager that for their longtime CEO who is retiring at the end of the year, uh, John Mackey. Uh, and I bring this up because he's, he, he recently interviewed on a podcast with Reason Magazine, oh. <laughs> everyone's favorite annoying libertarian website that is definitely not cool with fascism. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's some of the shit that he said on there, and it's this sort of thing, it's like, it's not surprising to hear a CEO or really anybody on the Reason magazine podcast <laughs> saying this stuff but when it's tied into this sort of a lawsuit you start to see the patterns there where he said stuff like quote my concern is that i feel like socialists are taking over they're marching through the institutions they've taken over education it looks like they've taken over a lot of the corporations it looks like they've taken over the military and it's just continuing so i'm deeply concerned end quote and of course I he couldn't wish. miss every ceo's favorite line quote i don't understand the younger generation they don't seem to want to work well Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, they're they're just mad that they have to work for all those socialist army generals <laughs> yeah. and CEOs that you're talking about. <laughs> it, it, it just reminded me of that. I mean, the the that meme. I think it's like a Facebook comment conversation that goes around like l- left book all the time, where somebody's like. Does anybody have a list of the woke corporations? And then somebody, clearly a, a lefty, is like, oh, I think it's really all of them. They all seem to be, like, woke <laughs> now. I, I think the only way we can take care of this is if the workers take over all of the corporations and run them themselves. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. But, yeah. So, I mean, huge shocker. CEO of Gigantic Company is racist and thinks that socialists are taking over which is you know patently ludicrous uh but you know we'll we'll see what happens uh i'm not super confident necessarily that a the u.s legal system is going to support the rights of free speech for workers uh but we'll see it, it, the case will be wrapping up in the next couple of weeks i imagine if the case does rule against whole foods they'll probably immediately appeal it and then drag this out for years sure but i i think that what i mean the big reason we want to talk about this is because it's such a window into the way that the ruling class thinks and it's important to understand because you know it's sort of a know your enemy sort of thing where like they know that if they can split these struggles apart and say they're distinct, that helps them because it splits the working class. It makes it harder for us to organize. And it, and, and they know that our strength is our numbers. And we have to understand that too and realize that our best weapon that we have as the working class is a strong militant labor movement that understands its role within the whole wider social struggle, the fight for black liberation, the fight for LGBTQ liberation, the fight for against all forms of oppression, no matter what they are. And, and it's the sort of thing where you like, if you are, are in like, you know, a labor organization, if you're, you're becoming a union officer or whatever, and you got people being like, look, we need to focus on bread and butter issues and not focus on these controversial social topics. Wrong, exact opposite of what needs to happen. And this sort of thing where we can see the way that the ruling class talks when it's just amongst themselves shows us exactly why we have to unite all those struggles together. 
Well, and absolutely. S- and speaking, well, speaking of, of uh, focusing on controversial social topics, I was going to say, and, and also, and also <laughs> use, using our numbers. Yeah. yeah. It just makes me, there's like a meme I saw the other day. It was a picture of the catacombs and it was like spooky fact. There is a France. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like replacing that with England. <laughs> I like that. There's also been a meme format going around that I really love because it's perfectly absurdist where it's like girls with a time machine. I am, I am your granddaughter. Topographical map of Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So moving along from our mid episode meme review break, um, yeah. <laughs> as Lena was saying, we're going across the pond back to, cause I mean, I, this is probably the most, we've talked about England in a consistent stretch because the, you know, the labor struggle there is really heating up and we've now had the biggest single strike of any of the recent like labor uh, upsurges. Cause you know, we talked about the huge strikes with the RMT shutting down the railway system with like 40,000 workers. We talked about, mm-hmm. you know, several thousand workers at their biggest container port last week going on strike. And now this past Friday, you just had 115,000 Royal Mail workers walking out on strike and basically shutting down the mail throughout the entirety of the UK. And, and it's yet again, it's the same thing. It's the same crisis that is affecting the entire working class really all over the world. Uh, but especially in, you know, a lot of the imperial core countries that have shackled themselves to the U S disastrous war in Ukraine. And it's like, you have workers who are being hit with insane levels of inflation and just can't survive on the pay that they're getting. Because like, for instance, these Royal mail workers, they're like, look, we've got inflation of 12%. We need a raise that keeps us in line with that. And what the company offered them was a raise of 2%. <laughs> so, you know, these workers clearly felt they had no other option with that sort of insulting offer but to hit the picket lines. Right, and that's in, in the face of the, the rampant inflation, which is meant, which is said to reach up to 18% by the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And the workers, you know, they they can feel the inflation intuitively in their lives. You have uh, Hannah Carroll, who was on strike in East London, who told the BBC, quote, the price of everything's going up. People are having to do more and more overtime. People are running themselves into the ground in order to feed their families and working 70 hour weeks just to make ends meet. It's ridiculous. And, you know, the origin of a lot of these problems, unsurprisingly, if you don't remember, the Royal Mail was privatized in 2013 because the UK is obsessed with privatizing things that work perfectly fine when they're Mm -hmm. run by the state. And now they claim that they are losing millions due to this weird thing called competition for package delivery from companies like Amazon and DPD. Sidebar, they wouldn't have to worry about that if they were still functionally a national mail service. (laughs) And so despite these claims, of course, uh, these are also contradicted by the fact that they recently reported profit for the year totaling over 400 million pounds and they tried to keep high priority mail moving by using 4,000 managers along with 6,000 temporary workers as replacement workers during this strike. Can you imagine the amount of compound issues caused by 4,000 managers <laughs> trying to run a supply chain <laughs> with 6,000 temporary workers? Yeah, like <laughs> I, I, it's one of those things where I'm like, Why'd you even bother? You know that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, British people, you just aren't getting your mail for a while. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, and I mean it's ridiculous. And 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 this was just a, so it's a one day strike for now. 
But like the fact that they're like, we're going to bring in 6,000 temporary workers to make sure the mail runs. I'm like, there's a hundred thousand people on strike. What the hell is 6,000 temporary workers who you're going to have to spend half the day training what to do. What? That's not going to do anything. <laughs> yeah. That's just the Buckingham regiment. That's 6,000 people who only handle the queen's mail. Yeah, probably. <laughs> So they, they can't let that not run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean the, the a survey that was done by the CWU, which is the, the union that represents the workers at the Royal Mail, has shown that the British public pretty much overwhelmingly not only supports the workers, but also agrees with them that the company should not have been privatized in the first place, with over 63% of the British public believing that the company should be brought back into public ownership and that management should have their pay capped, which, you know, would probably go a lot longer of a way towards making the mail run better and more efficiently than trying to keep wages low for the people actually doing the mail delivery. Well, and the company itself has made threats to split the company to even yeah. further balkanize the the like poor way in which this this company functions again that should be a national service and uh, and the and the company saying uh, you know uh, along with this this threat to split the company uh, says that this is going to happen if workers don't agree to the pay cuts uh, mm-hmm. and they they say. Uh, Quote, without modernization, we die. It's like, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Making 400 million but... pounds. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's why does modernization, ridiculous. why does modernization always just mean without having the people who already make a lot of money make a lot more money year after year? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this whole thing would fall apart. <laughs> well, it was just, it was so wild reading that because it's like reading, because, you know, I read a lot of labor history books for the, for the mm-hmm. show. And every time I read about the 80s, which we talked about in, you know, like our Decline of American Unionism series, where you had this mass surge, basically it was this all-out offensive on labor by, uh, starting in the mid-70s, by companies, and a big part of it was this campaign of, you have to accept these concessionary contracts, because if you don't, we we won't be able to compete in the global market. We'll lose out to Japan. We'll have to close our plant, and then you'll be sad because you won't have any jobs. And every single time, that was a lie. All that ended up doing was creating larger and larger profits for the management of the companies. Like, and it's the same thing here. This idea, oh, if we don't, if we don't, you know, get all the workers to agree to pay cuts, we won't be able to deliver the mail. It's like again. 400 million pound profit <laughs> yeah. that doesn't well, make any, any sense <laughs> and i mean even then the the competing with other markets for what delivering the mail locally <laughs> right like you think right. that like the, the people delivering mail in japan are competing with the people delivering mail in the uk <laughs> yeah yeah, that's because that's the thing. It's not like there's an alternative letter delivery service. Amazon isn't delivering your letters to the queen, <laughs> as right. you were saying, John. Like, yeah, it's it's a completely nonsensical argument, which I think is probably a big part of why it hasn't really seemed to resonate with the British public that much. And, right. And and I mean, yeah, you have like. The CWU General Secretary, Dave Ward, who said very correctly, quote, let's be totally clear. The company posted record profits back in April. There can be no doubt that postal workers are completely united in their determination to secure the dignified, proper pay rise they deserve. We can't keep living in a country where bosses rake in billions in profit while their employees are forced to use food banks. We will fight to the bitter end if necessary, end quote. 
Yeah, and to continue their strikes in the future, they have uh, additional strikes planned for the 31st, so two days from now, because we're recording this this on the 20th. On the 29th, so this coming Wednesday, and then additional, uh, and then an additional two-day strike on September 8th and 9th. So yeah, I mean solidarity with these workers. Uh, I mean the, the the attacks from the 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 company are stupid. Good, renationalize the the mail. It's it's very silly to have it be a private company. Yeah, it's just insane. It does kind of seem like the last few decades of British politics have just been increasingly unpopular decisions made by conservative Tory governments <laughs> yeah. or conservative labor governments. Doesn't really seem to matter. Yeah, I mean, not to like <laughs> drag this on by editorializing, but I feel like this current labor upsurge is just been, I mean, honestly, I think one of the biggest things of it is just exposing the complete uselessness of the leadership of the Labor Party. Well, how hard is that to do when you have Keir Starmer (laughs) leading? Yeah, no, I know, but it's just made it just so clear. When you have like one of the probably one of the biggest upsurges in decades in Mm -hmm. labor struggles, and you have the guy in charge of the Labor Party telling major people in the party that is literally called the fucking Labor Party not to go and support workers on strike lines, like. It makes no sense. Everybody who's in labor joined the Communist Party. Like, it's fucked up. Like, it, it sucks. Screw Keir Starmer. He's just a Tory. Anyways, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's my little rant about the Labor Party. Yeah. <laughs> well, in keeping with the theme of the show, which is uh, covering huge strikes and uh, actions kind of modeled after those strikes, we've talked many times uh, in the past about the the farm workers strike in India and uh, what we've seen recently in Toronto is Punjabi workers who are, uh, you know, I guess in Canada uh, emulating that Indian farmers strike through some of their community actions. The uh, now Jawin support network, the NSN made up of about a hundred workers and students has been campaigning against wage theft uh, and has succeeded in winning back over $200,000 Canadian in previously stolen wages for these workers. Yeah, this is a really cool story. This is a like a, a bit of a long-form piece that was written in The Real News. Really good reporting, really interesting. Uh, and, and the way that this group, the NSN, functions, I think uh, for people in the U.S., is a little more analogous to like worker centers or like local labor councils, mm-hmm. where you'll see groups that aren't necessarily a union, and they're not necessary. They're also not like an out exterior third party NGO or anything like that. But it's this attempt of workers in sort of like disparate settings to come together and try and have a community based approach to fighting for workers' rights. And so, like the NSN's tactics around that are, as Lino was saying, largely inspired by the Indian farmer strike. And what they're mostly trying to do is focus on. Uh, this has been specifically in like the Toronto and the the general Toronto area, focusing on really exploitative businesses and and trying to build community campaigns to shame the owners of these small businesses into stopping their exploitative practices and specifically wage theft. So like when workers bring a problem to their attention, they offer to provide like basic mediation services. So they'll be like, okay, we'll come talk with you and your boss to be like, can we, can we talk this out? Can we just have a sit down and settle it? And when the bosses refuse to do anything, which is, you know, the, the normal response, then they swing their campaign into action being like, hey, we gave you a chance to have a simple sit down and you refused. And so now we're going to tell everybody that you're stealing from your workers. And so they've been having like 
they have hold big rallies out in front of the places. They do big social media campaigns. They'll organize like protests in front of owners' homes, and and eventually, in some places, have been organizing and maintaining boycotts of businesses that are owned by bosses that refuse to actually pay their workers what they're owed. And so, like in an interview that the Real News Network did with one of the workers involved with this, Rupinder Singh. He explained how the group has, has helped bring together workers across different employers, saying, quote, I knew my vacation pay rights, but I didn't know my other rights. When I joined the meeting, I saw so many cases of exploitation in other industries like trucking and food. I'm feeling very proud to be part of the NSN, an organization directly taking on the employer head to head, end quote. Um, and so like one of their recent campaigns that they did, this is mostly what the article was focusing around, was against this company called Souk Auto where uh, Rupinder Singh had had $4,000 in wages and vacation time illegally stolen under the guise from his employer there that, well, new hires are on a probationary training period, and so you don't get paid your full wage during training, which is not legal. Uh, and so, like, after about six months of abusive treatment from management, Singh quit at working at Sukadio Auto and got a different job, but he kept trying to get those wages that were illegally taken from him. And in January, the owner of Sukado, Sukdeep Sin, uh, sorry, Sukdeep Punjan, asked to meet with Singh and threatened him with a shovel for trying to get his money back. Yeah, yeah, that's insane to me. I mean, uh, you hear a lot of stuff about bosses being hostile when you try to confront them for stuff, but you don't see a lot of getting threatened with. A shovel, necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so in, in response to this, the NSN started a public campaign to call out the company's wage theft. And, uh, you know, I've seen a few of these be actually pretty effective, especially when they're leveraged against relatively small business owners. And they held protests in front of the business and sent out social media and email blasts, which labeled the owner a thief. Uh, of this predictably enraged the owner, Hoon John, who launched a half a million dollar defamation suit against the network, who are continuing their fight for justice in the face of it. And at recent protests in front of Souk Auto, videos showed company hired goons attempting to intimidate and harass the protesters. But but of course, they were overwhelmed by the much larger crowd of workers. Crazy to me that you would hire goons to intimidate <laughs> protesters over $4,000 worth of shit that you could have easily just paid your employee. Right. Yeah. And this isn't limited just to to uh, this one or two companies. The actual the NSN organizers estimate that a vast majority of businesses in the area commit similar wage theft against their immigrant workers. However, the legal system has all always favored the business owners with only 40% of those workers uh, even uh, submitting their claims through the legal system ever recovering their wages. So that means that that so that 60% of people who attempt to recover their wages through this wage theft are just left with nothing through for mm -hmm. all of their hard work uh, not only from the work they literally did but also the work they did to recover those those stolen wages. Yeah. Yeah, I mean people ask a lot of the time like, you know, what do you, what do you think we could do to radicalize more like normie, more like moderate liberals around us and people will say like, "Oh, this text is super accessible, you know, this isn't too hard, it kind of breaks things down easily. Just explain wage theft, how yeah. big it is, how much of it there is, and watch watch people in your everyday life start realizing that situations they were in basically constituted wage theft. I mean, it it really is like a, 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 a tangible example that people can really latch on to. Yeah. Uh, and uh, 
the the, the motivation of, of realizing that and realizing that they have a resource that they can go to to uh, have recourse for this, in addition to being inspired by the historic farmers movement in India, uh, really gave them a lot of gas in their tank, so to speak. And of course, the farmers movement forced the Modi government to rescind planned laws aimed at dispossessing fall, small farmers. Uh, Gurjeet Singh told TRNN, quote, they pushed him, Modi, basically to the ground and they did it peacefully. We want to do it peacefully too. This is our right. If they can do it, we can do it. And like, it seems kind of cliche to talk about how like taking inspiration from attempts at things that worked is like really important, but (laughs) I think it really is. And it gets a lot of people on your side and it teaches a lot of people who would like to do something that maybe if they try they'll succeed. It also gives yeah. real direction to to a movement and and doesn't leave people cr- trying to create something from scratch that quite mm-hmm. possibly would entirely fail. Whether, you know, I mean the, the farmer strike being a general strike that was successful, uh being a really good example to pull from for this sort of action. I mean, we talk very often about the kind of short-sighted ways in which some people view general strikes and hope that they can just, you know, put a couple memes out and make it happen. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, to actually look at these movements that were successful and model the organizing around that uh, shows in real material ways the ways in which we can fight back. Yeah. yeah, I mean, building a workers' movement is a lot like building anything else. Imagine you wanted to build a paper plane, but you said, I'm not going to look at any other paper planes. I want this to just be our paper plane. <laughs> right. It ain't going to fly for shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and there was just, like, one last, like, little example uh, of this, the way that these workers are organizing that I, I wanted to close out with because I think it's such mm-hmm. a great illustration of how actually being in the struggle changes consciousness and that's why it's so important for us to be involved in all these struggles and so like in july they were holding a protest in front of another local wage thieves home uh mahabir uh bat who's the owner of uh baba daba which is a, which is a restaurant in the toronto suburb of brampton and so <laughs> brampton. They, they were protesting what a stupid name <laughs> and 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 they were like hey, they were uh what brampton <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dumbest sounding town I've ever heard. <laughs> and so they're they're out there in front of his house, and they're you know making a lot of noise. They it's funny they have pictures in the article where they actually use chalk to just write in the street in front of his house. That's like wage th- thief with a huge arrow pointing at the house. <laughs> it was great, and 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 so they handed out flyers to inform people in the area about what he was doing, about how he'd stolen ten thousand dollars in wages from his workers. They they wrote out their demands in chalk, as I was saying. And they finished their protest with a group meal, much like, you know, you had the langars that were going on uh, at the all the various protests as part of the, the strike movement in India and ended with a big chant of Inkilab Zindabad or long live the revolution. Hell yeah. That's awesome. And also, I just love the energy of, of, of labeling something and drawing an arrow, being like wage thief here. It's kind of like the I'm with stupid of this guy stole money from <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, incredible energy. Like, and it's, these sorts of things are, I think, one of those things because, like, look, we're a pro-union podcast. We, we mm-hmm. want to build the labor movement. We want people to build unions. But this sort of, like, other forms of organic worker struggle are also – can also, you know, help be auxiliaries to the movement and can help bring people into the struggle where if you're in, like, these little – Small businesses, I mean, how many stories have we talked about where there's a shop that has maybe 10 employees, the employees talk about unionizing, and they just shut the store? Mm -hmm. So, like, 
not that this is necessarily a panacea or a QR curl for something like that, but if there's a sector like that, or you have a specific type of oppression like the way many of these Punjabi immigrants are facing, then this sort of a community-based organizing can also serve as a way to bring people into the struggle. And so I think that this story of what these folks are doing up in Toronto is a real beautiful thing. Absolutely. I would love to see more workers' councils around. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, that sort of solidarity network is essential to building community support as those uh, those organizations have uh, maybe a little bit more time to do community organizing rather than the, the workers who are spending a lot of time at the means of production itself trying to organize those workers. So so I, 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 love, I love that idea as well. But uh, to continue with what, I mean, with you know, kind of a similar to the uh, REI story earlier, we are going to talk about the Chipotle workers in Lansing that have won their first union in the Chipotle franchise uh, with an 11 to 3 vote to unionize with the Teamsters. Uh, it's really, really uh, impressive that, I mean, Chipotle, this criminal organization, which we just recently covered, uh, having vi- 600,000 yeah, 600, violations in New York City alone over the period of four or five years, uh, seeing the workers fight back uh, along with the workers up in Maine who had their store closed in the face of their union organizing. Yeah, I love seeing this kind of strength coming out of Michigan, too. Way to go, Lansing Chipotle workers. 11 to 3 is a solid victory. Michigan State, baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, let's hear from one of the workers, Samantha Smith, who's, who's one of the workers at the store where she makes just thirteen thirty-three an hour, told the Washington Post, quote, I am so excited we won. Being one of the first fast food restaurants to do this definitely proves a point to the entire country that we can do this. This is a gigantic gigantic first step toward doing that and improving the lives of future generations. Yeah. Uh, so th- I want to point that's out really huge. Yeah. And I want to point out that wage that thirteen thirty three dollars an hour when we have covered on the show previously that Chipotle uh, had to have been more than a year ago said that they were going to bring workers up to again an average of fifteen dollars an hour mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I mean that that word average doing a lot of work. Uh, especially being seen here with this worker only getting thirteen thirty three an hour. Yeah, yeah, which again is not a living wage anywhere in the country. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, this obviously, you know, comes in the wake of the oppression of the workers in Augusta, Maine, who were mm-hmm. organizing and had their store closed down in retaliation by the company. And, you know, the, we hear basically most of the same issues from these workers in Lansing, who now, have, of course, successfully unionized about why they chose to organize, saying, you know, the fact that people there are making thirteen thirty-three an hour, <laughs> it's low wages, la- and, and also a lack of hours for workers who desperately need them to be able to pay their bills. Like worker organizers at this store say that some of the workers were only scheduled one day a week, despite needing much more than that, and that most of the workers at the store are forced, forced to take second jobs. All while the, the management left the store more or less permanently understaffed. So it's the convergence of so many of the things that we see from workers, especially in low wage, like retail and fast food jobs. I mean, like, we see every, I mean, anyone who's worked these jobs knows that every, every single shift is understaffed. Yeah, mm-hmm. 100%. 
Uh, I mean, honestly, like for me, that's been one of the very eye-opening things. Cause I, like I worked food service in college, but it was not for like a, a chain. It was for the, the college itself. Mm-hmm. And, and so like, that was not an experience that I'd had. And then if we've go, been going through this, you know, for the last couple of years, it's just like, oh yeah, every store is understaffed. <laughs> They're just doing this on purpose to squeeze as much labor out of every one of their workers as they can get. Yeah, I mean, like, when I used to go on tour with DIY bands, we did the Chipotle trick, which is where if you call a Chipotle uh, and then you ask the manager, like, hey, we're a touring band, will you give us free food? A lot of times they'll say yes. I don't know if it was store policy or whatever, but we did it. And I remember back then, you'd walk into a Chipotle, there'd be like eight or ten people running the Chipotle all at once, like a dedicated meat person and, like, someone on the grill and someone doing tortillas and, and like, four people running the front. And nowadays you go into a Chipotle and it's like it looks like a dollar general in there. Yeah. Yeah. And so like one of the workers at the store worker organizer, Harper McNamara uh, told the Washington post quote, there's rarely a shift where anyone in the store is working only one position. I've had to Mm -hmm. do cash register and prepare both hot and cold food at the same time. End quote. Yeah. And you shouldn't be having to switch between cash handling and food handling like that. That's just unsafe for everyone. Yeah. And if it's anything like Starbucks, they have specific policies against shifting away from your stations and so worker Mm -hmm. this is also used as a bludgeon against workers who are then Mm -hmm. violating policy so that if for some reason this uh, someone is you know being loud about unions uh they can just justify write-ups and firings based on the fact that oh you're not doing your job properly because you're shifting between stations when in reality they're telling you to work multiple stations yeah, well, yeah. and they're they're just putting you in situations where if you don't, uh, you won't be able to keep up with the customer demand, and then they'll be able to penalize you one way or the other. It's a lose lose for the worker. Yeah, and and one of the things I thought was funny was, <laughs> so of course Chipotle put out their standard boilerplate statement, but and they couldn't get out, they couldn't get get it out without one last dig at the union saying. We're disappointed that the employees at our Lansing, Michigan restaurant chose to have a third party speak on their behalf because we continue to believe that working directly together is best for our employees. And this is also the kind of person who, you know, once they're not talking to a PR firm is saying, oh, yeah, we dictate to the workers and that that, like the story earlier when we were covering the Whole Foods uh, CEOs, where it's like, uh, well, the workers don't actually have a say. I and mean, then at the same time, they're like, oh, we want to work directly with our employees right. as if they're equals. And uh, right. and and so it's it's very clearly just PR speak. Yeah, yeah, well, and I mean, the workers have said themselves, like workers at many other uh, unionizing or successfully unionized stores have said uh, that they tried to bring their concerns to management themselves. They tried to to do the kind of direct request for better things that the, the company is so fond of talking about uh, and, you know, asking for better conditions, asking for a raise, asking for anything. It either falls on deaf ears or you just fucking get fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a you have uh, Atulia Dora Lasky who told reporters, quote, they say ask us for things directly, but if you ask someone directly, they just ignore you. That made it crystal clear that an individual relationship with the employer is unworkable. And it's like, fuck yeah, couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. And and one of the things I thought was really cool about this with another example, because, you know, the, these, these folks just organized with the Teamsters, but they said a big part of what inspired them to unionize their location was not just, you know, 
working with the Teamsters. It wasn't just the, the brave efforts of the folks in Augusta to try and organize their store. It was also seeing the explosive growth of the Starbucks Workers United movement. And so like mm-hmm. Samantha Smith continued in that, that same interview saying, after seeing the victories at Starbucks, it was like, oh my God, we can accomplish this. A lot of young people are in favor of unionizing, but I thought it would never happen here. That realism is what is keeping a lot of us down right now. Getting this far shows us we do have to try because we can succeed, end quote. Revolutionary optimism, folks. Gets the That's goods. Right. <laughs> yeah, and so with that, we will transition into talking about our weekly segment on the Starbucks Workers United movement. Hell yeah. And... So we have another what seems to be a pretty big uh, ruling this week where the NLRB ruled this hasn't gone before a judge yet, but the board has ruled that they have agreed with the charges from the union that Starbucks has been illegally withholding workers raises and benefits as a part of their campaign to try and break the union. Uh, the board specifically found merit to numerous ULPs filed by the union since the drive began, specifically relating to Starbucks's campaign of providing new wages and benefits to workers at non-union stores and then refusing to offer those same benefits to workers at unionized stores. And of course, you know, listeners will know we've talked about that a million times. Starbucks says they can't offer new stuff to, to the union because of status quo. That is a lie. That is not how the, the law works. And now it's not just us, your communist labor podcast saying that. <laughs> it is the NLRB and their lawyers saying that. I love so, when we come out and we're like, hey, no, it's not actually that way. And then suddenly vindication. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like even the bourgeois legal system disagrees with Starbucks on this. And, and so like... The, the board agreed with the union saying that uh, withholding those wages and benefits are an attempt to discourage union organizing. And so uh, Richard Bensinger, who's uh, one of the lead organizers with Workers United, told Washington Post, quote, this is a historic triumph for democracy and the rule of law that a billionaire CEO must apologize to employees for abusing them and violating their rights as well as making them whole, end quote. Oh, and what man. he's referring to I there. Cannot... Yeah, 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 go ahead. <laughs> is that in addition to the board saying, hey, you you can't, you can't do that shit. You can't just offer non-union stores new wages in exchange for not being union. That's clearly illegal. They're not just demanding back wages and benefits and for and forcing this the company to actually, you know, apply these things equally the way that the law says they're supposed to. They're demanding the Starbucks turn over all their payroll records so that the board can actually make sure that they do pay workers the back wages that they uh, are owed, which, I mean, you would think the board would be doing in most of these cases anyway, but apparently that's a pretty uh, exceptional case. But in, in addition, they are demanding that the company send apology letters to each affected worker and provide new training on workers' rights to management. And that includes asking for Howard Schultz to videotape an apology to the union for breaking these laws. I cannot wait. I want to see that motherfucker cry on video. I want to see him squirm as he reads a, a statement that has that has been, you know, I probably expertly crafted to be like well we're following the law but also we condemn blah 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 blah, blah or whatever but i still yeah. i just want to see that motherfucker squirm <laughs> right yeah you know it's going to be as backhanded as legally possible and and probably even over that line a couple of times but yes i look forward to seeing that video very much uh, <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, especially in the wake of the fact that Starbucks has begun to expand uh, its campaign of just closing stores down. Where they have shuttered a third union store in Seattle since the start of the month. More egregiously uh, and more blatantly is the fact that they're going to reopen the store, not as a company-controlled store, but as a licensed store operated by a grocery store with a completely new staff. And that's so interesting to me because, like, is this this isn't in the grocery store, right? No, it's 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 like right next to the grocery store. That's I think it's in disgusting. like the same complex. Because working for Starbucks for a long time, they really resisted opening uh, licensed stores unless they were firmly situated inside of another business. And so it's interesting that they literally don't give a shit about that anymore. And they're like, nope, yeah. union busting is more important. Uh, so of the 19 recent stores that the company has closed, 42% were either union or had filed for election compared to the... 3% nationwide average. So <laughs> that's what? Uh, over an order of magnitude? Yeah, more I mean, concentrated? It is 14 times yeah. the <laughs> percentage of union stores broadly. It's the sort of thing that you look at it and you're like, that's not a random correlation. <laughs> no, I mean, how could it possibly be? And of course, so they're closing another store in Kansas City where workers had already submitted votes for their union election. And once again, the company is citing unsubstantiated claims of vague safety concerns. And this is very similar to when the U.S. government justifies doing something obviously illegal by saying it's for national security reasons, uh, especially because, you know, the U.S. government doesn't really give that much of a shit about national security in the real sense of what it means. And companies don't give a shit about safety concerns at no. all, as uh, is can easily be understood by Starbucks's refusal to do anything about what was basically an open cesspool and grease trap happening mm -hmm. in the back of one of their locations. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I mean, like the union has put out a statement saying, "quote If Starbucks was serious about solving safety issues, they could work with partners and our union." Instead, Schultz and Starbucks have sent a message loud and clear: complain about safety, and we'll close your store. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's detestable. It's uh, bald faced and it is also frankly illegal, but mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like the kind of uh, violation of the law that is usually enforced. Yeah. No, I, this one, I don't, I'm going to be, I, I, I don't think we're going to be seeing a big NLRB ruling on this one because I mean, just generally while it is technically illegal for companies of all stripes to close a store in retaliation for a union drive, proving that that's why they close the store is extremely difficult, even if it's obvious, which it is here. Well, like mm -hmm. actually proving that in the bourgeois legal system is next to impossible. Well, and even you basically then, have to get them to accidentally send you all of their personal emails, right. Alex Jones style. Like. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even then when those store, those stores will remain closed, even with a settlement where the workers right. will then just be paid a dividend for their, their, right. the, the harm done to them. If, even if there is, uh, a ruling in favor of the workers. And uh, like with uh, what I was mentioning last week when we were covering the Eugene Ork and where, uh, Starbucks Workers United strikes, where almost every single store in that city had gone on strike, and I mentioned, oh, Ithaca, you better get on this. Well, they must have been listening. <laughs> 
because yeah. <laughs> Ithaca is uh, go is planning a citywide strike at the same time to or uh, all at the same time to protest the firing of yet another worker organizer at the company and the campaign of union busting that the company has been participating in. So uh, we don't have a ton of details on this at the moment, but we'll make sure to follow up on that. And I really want to say, ah. I fucking love all of these strikes and I love the coordinated <laughs> strikes and I also love predicting the future. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's been one of the great things to watch is like we can cuz by doing that's one of the things. I I know to some folks it might be a bit repetitive that we talk about Starbucks Workers United at the end of the show every week. But I think it's one of those cases where we get to see in real time the workers figuring out what tactics work and how to maximize their effectiveness in their organizing. Cause we've seen so many strikes and they've been accelerating over time. And we're now seeing more and higher levels of coordination of those strikes. And that's exactly the sort of thing that it's going to take to get that first contract. And so it's really encouraging to see like the workers coming up with these more creative and more powerful ways to organize their collective like work stoppages. And it's, it's been I think really uh, inspirational and something that we can we can all draw from. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to continue covering the victories at Starbucks on Monday workers at the Shawtuck and Berkeley uh, store in Berkeley, California won their vote 12 to 16 becoming the 16th union store in California with there was another uh, win in the South this week where at uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, workers voted 16 to 10 in favor of unionizing. Workers in Vestal, New York, Vestal? Ve- Probably Vestal. Uh, I, think that's, I don't yeah, know. Ve- Vestal, New York also voted 9 to 4 to, uh, to join the union. And uh, workers in Greenbush, New York won their election as well on the 25th with a vote of 9 to 4. Bringing the total of union the total number of unionized stores up to two hundred and thirty one, which I mean, like there have been so many victories that have been happening from Starbucks, but I think that it's actually really apt to point out right here that Starbucks workers winning uh, union elections is not actually the majority of elections that have happened in the in in uh, twenty twenty two so far. Because there was a report recently from the NLRB that said in the first half of 2022, uh, we've seen the highest number of union victories in 20 years with over 600 yeah. new bargaining units created through their elections. Hell yeah, it, folks. Michigan yeah. State, and obviously, baby. That's not- <laughs> obviously, that's no shade to Starbucks because they are a huge portion of it. I just think that sometimes it's really like, oh, wow, there's been uh, 231 stores that have unionized the Starbucks. That must be the huge majority and that maybe we're around 400. No, folks, we are over 600 in just the first half of this year, the most in 20 years. That's so Hell cool. Yeah. We love to see it. And things we also love to see, as always, is memes in it's the, meme the meme review. review. <laughs> Hell yeah. I saw this first one this morning, and I just love it. This is, It's so so good. It's taking an emblem on a truck, which is a Kenworth truck, uh, mm-hmm. and and really taking it uh, to, to a, a really awesome work stoppage kind of level, where there is additional letters above it says... 
this job ain't and then the the beginning of it says at this i'll just i'll just read the whole thing this job ain't fucking worth it <laughs> hey yeah Man, i i, 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 I love the uh, appropriation of the logo to, to complain about the job <laughs> extremely high quality yeah it's way smarter than something i would have come up with too which would probably just be like a d's nuts joke <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely well um and then the next one is actually almost a callback <laughs> to our introduction today <laughs> Uh, which is a, uh, you know, a birthday. We're celebrating a birthday, folks. (laughs) This one, the freeze frame on the second half of this is so funny. They did, they picked the perfect moment in the video to pause on because like the motion they captured is so, so what this is, is it's, it, this is from a, I think this is an Instagram account, uh, named called radio jamming. And it's, it's a couple of screen caps from a video. And, And so you've got, a picture of somebody holding a cake in front of, I think if you didn't have the caption, you'd be like, is that like an oven or an incinerator or something? And uh-huh. it's a cake and it's got one, four or five on the candles. This is nice little chocolate cake. And then they just heave it into the <laughs> oven. And, and then it's captioned. I haven't been able to get the full video, but we just celebrated one of our steam locomotives turning 145 by chucking a chocolate cake into her firebox, <laughs> which is one Awesome. Love the energy. Love the workers having a laugh, throwing this <laughs> cake adorned with one, four, five and candles into the firebox. Two, uh, a country should not be operating on 145-year-old rail infrastructure, whether that's the <laughs> locomotives or the rails or the systems in place. None of that shit should ever be allowed to reach 145 years old. I, I really think the only thing that could have made these freeze frames better is if the candles were lit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would have been great. But no, I, They're about did... to be lit in a second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Uh, and the this next one is just a uh, kind of sixteen bit landscape of also train tracks and a and a uh, sunset or sunrise maybe, uh, but it is just captioned: "Doing stuff is hard." Shout out to anyone who does anything except for <laughs> except the police because fuck the police. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Doing stuff is hard. It's true. I definitely agree. Yeah, I felt I, uh-huh. I just felt this one. This is I I threw it in here because it was like it really vibes energy. Yeah. So this next one, which <laughs> <laughs> we posted this on the Facebook, and this I think got like the most likes of anything we've ever posted. It's like this or like <laughs> I don't know the JoJo meme that that you made, John. <laughs> like so this is this is and this is just it was just a screen grab from uh, uh, this uh, account, Socialist Sopranos memes on on Twitter. Where you've got, and they do, this is the format they use for a ton of their memes. So they, they've, they've got the picture of Chris Moltisanti from the show, from The Sopranos, you know. And it's, it's called Quiet Quitting, T. It means not doing the shit you ain't paid to do. But I guess they thought it needed a stupid name or some shit. <laughs> God. It's a great summary of what it is. And also, I do love how much mileage you can get out of this uh, photo of Chris Moltisanti. <laughs> like, yeah. This is perfect for everything. I've been really enjoying uh, Michael Imperioli, the actor, in the new show This Fool, which is like a... 
it, it's a very normie like network television series, but I have to say the jokes do land. It's a very funny show. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in that I have brought in a, another kind of QC meme that I have found nice in this kind of revolutionary optimism is though this is a pretty uh has a kind of a bleak background with a glowing smiley face that's honestly a little uh, unsettling. Uh the text on this one It's really big eyes. Yeah, yeah. What are you talking about? This is just a photo of England. <laughs> <laughs> or like a screen gab from V for Vendetta or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the text on this one is, says, The future is unknowable and will be determined by how hard we fight for a loving world, which I find to be really inspiring and and honestly one of the, the better uh, memes from this page, Weaponized Apathy, which I think has some good memes but sometimes miss a little bit. Um, Hell yeah. But uh, but yeah, with that, we're going to wrap for this episode. We want to thank everyone for listening. If you want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash workstoppage and shoot us $5 a month. You can get access to our recent interview with Nate Holdren as we talk about social murder and the history of workers' comp laws. And uh, as well as just a ton of other content that we've put out, explainers on rank and file unionism, uh, the decline of American unionism, the repressive state apparatus, the list goes on. You could also write a five-star review literally anywhere. We've seen some of our listeners uh, write five-star reviews in some some funny places, and we appreciate (laughs) that. Uh, You can follow John on Twitter at FacebookVillain. Follow the pod at WorkStoppagePod. We are on Facebook as well. You can search us up at WorkStoppage. And you can listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever. Solidarity out there. Solidarity, everybody. चितौड़ के गढ़ की
इससे क्यों इनकार करे हाँ इससे क्यों इनकार करे अपनी मौत की उंगली पकड़ कर अपनी मौत की उंगली पकड़ कर हम दुश्मन पर वार करे हाँ हम दुश्मन पर वार करे मरना तो है एक हकीकत इससे क्यों इनकार करें अपनी मौत की उंगली पकड़ कर हम दुश्मन पर वार करें देश के खातिर मर जाना तो